0: Welcome to PI's Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Good morning. Good morning. So, have you ever um, have you ever had testifying court? Have you ever had a lot of anxiety about testifying court? Um, Have you been asked to and then it didn't happen and now you're being asked again and the anxiety has increased? Well, here to talk about preparing for a court appearance is Stephanie Savoy. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, how are you? I'm great. And uh, I know you're in Connecticut. You're calling in to our station in Phoenix, uh, Voice America, on our PIs Declassified, and I'm in California, so we're a continent away (laughs) <laughs> the great thing of technology, isn't it? So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, Stephanie, uh, I know you're with Savoy & Associates. Tell me a little bit about your company uh, before we get started here, about talking about the court appearances. Sure.
2: So, we are just entering our fourth year. We just celebrated our third anniversary. Uh, mm-hmm. We are in Connecticut. As you mentioned, we cover the entire state. One of the blessings of being a small little state like Connecticut, we can cover the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, we pretty much specialize in pre-litigation and litigation investigations for attorneys out here.
1: Okay. Are you do- Are you talking about civil cases or civil criminal? Or
2: We do the whole gamut for attorneys. We do civil. Okay. We do criminal. We do a lot of family work out here for attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty much taken over the practice at this point.
1: Okay. And, um... So you're the managing partner, so who are the other partners?
2: My, my husband's a partner with me here in the firm. Uh, Ray is my husband.
1: Okay. Hi, Ray. <laughs> How are you, Ray? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in this business?
2: So I uh, came from a world of politics. I was heavily involved in uh, the political scene here in Connecticut and somewhat on a national level. Uh, in college and after college, did that for quite a few years, and slowly got burnt out from that entire field.
0: I, can't I was,
2: Why? <laughs> quickly, yeah. As I was burning out, um, a person out here had a PI firm, and he was looking to expand his firm and offer uh, opposition research for political campaigns. So we were connected, met with him, and uh, we hit it off. I started working for him and his firm. Mm -hmm. And slowly worked my way uh, up the ladder there and covered all of the investigations. That was, uh, let's see now, eight years ago I started out there, uh, and four years ago broke away and started my own firm.
1: And what are the requirements for licensure in Connecticut?
2: So to get an agency license, you have to have either been in law enforcement for 10 years uh, or worked as a PI under someone else's license for five years.
1: Okay. Okay. So it, it's based on years, not on hours? Exactly. And uh, what is the status of employees that work for a PI firm?
2: So to work for, as an employee, uh, you have to be over 21, pass uh, you know the regular background checks, and then you could just begin working straight away uh, for someone with an agency license. There's two different types of licensing in Connecticut. There's an agency license that allows you to employ people, And then just a straight PI license that allows you just to work for yourself. Um, But with Mm. an agency license, you can employ anyone that passes the background. is over 21. And then it's really on-the-job training that person receives.
1: And is that employee background, is that done by the state?
2: It is. It's done by the state
1: of Connecticut. Okay. So it's kind of like, is it kind of like a registered employee? A registered... Exactly. Process. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And so... um, so an employee, though, just has to pass a the background. They don't have to have experience. They can start out fresh with nothing and uh, work, work their way through it.
2: Exactly, exactly.
1: Okay, it's a good opportunity for, for folks who are interested in it really this is. business.
2: You know, it really is. It gives a lot of different people a chance to you know, try it. And you know, in my case, I was able to work under someone um, who had law enforcement background. So I really got to see... Hands-on training in the field, how to conduct investigations.
1: And so, when somebody comes out of law enforcement in Connecticut, do they uh, automatically qualify for the requirements? Yeah, as long as they've
2: left in good standing and have ten years' experience on the job.
1: Oh, ten years—that's interesting. Uh, ten years at the law at the uh, police department. They yep, work as in. law enforcement. Uh huh. Oh, interesting. Okay. Every state's a little different, little different twist. So it's always yep. interesting to hear what different states' requirements are. So, um, Stephanie, um, you you wrote an article for PI Magazine. I have to mention PI Magazine are, are great sponsors. Um, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli. and yep. uh, we read the article and thought this was such a great topic because these are the preparing for a court appearance are not the things you talk, you think about when you're doing private investigation work unless you've done it once. Absolutely. <laughs> So, I thought, uh, just such a great topic. And so, um, tell me a little bit about how you were thinking the first time you had to testify in court.
2: Yeah, it was with uh, my first firm. I was probably a year and a half in to working as a PI uh, and, you know, worked this case. It was a surveillance case and, you know, turned the report in to our client I really had zero expectation at that point that it could even go to court. Cause at that point mm. myself or anyone, in the, we had never been deposed or issued a subpoena or anything. So it just never crossed my mind for some reason, you know, shortly thereafter a marshal comes and hands me my notice to appear <laughs> for a deposition and just pure panic ensued. Absolute pure panic went through my head because I had never sat through something like that before. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the article, my husband's an attorney, so mm-hmm. I had really the best prep possible going into it. But still, even with all the prep and even with people saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry, because they've been through it, until you actually sit there and go through these and you know, get comfortable in your own skin there, it's something that, you know, in my case anyway, was just right. panic from the moment I got the notice until the moment the first one was over.
1: Well, there's really no experience like it uh, because it's so, mm, how do I say, it's so controlled. It's a controlled yes. environment. And, uh, and it's one thing sitting in the audience watching it or watching it on tel- television, and it's a completely different thing when you're seeing that witness.
2: <laughs> <laughs> 100%.
1: <laughs> so, okay. Um, and since that time, do you have any idea how many times you've testified?
2: You know, I was trying to think of it before coming on today, and best guess is over 50. It's become quite a regular occurrence here for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, are they mostly family law? What what type of cases do you have to testify most?
2: Mo- uh, the majority would be family, I would say, is the predominant one. But occasionally we get called into civil cases, you know, for breach of contracts, uh, mm. for um, you know, violation of non compete agreements, those type of things.
1: Right. And then when you get called uh, to testify on a family law case, what typically is your role on that?
2: The majority of those would have to be for cohabitation investigations, you know, where someone's looking to either reduce or cancel out their alimony because the ex is now cohabitating with a new partner, mm-hmm. um, you know, or proving that the other person is now working and receiving income, which would reduce the alimony. Uh, So usually it's, you know, some sort of investigation either into who the person is residing with or where the person is working, you know, which usually ends up being under the table somewhere.
1: Right. Is that typically surveillance-based or are you doing also records research, that kind of thing? With the cohabitation,
2: it's, you know, surveillance and records-based, seeing if there's anything in the new partner's name at the property, seeing if they have anything registered to that property, anything that legally ties them to the property, and then, of course, the surveillance piece, photos of them coming, going, uh, and those types of things.
1: Yeah, I. you know, my sense is, and tell me if this is right or wrong, that the family law charges are the most highly emotional charged cases of any of the things we do. A hundred percent.
2: Without any doubt, they are by far... Um, some of the toughest cases to work,
1: and 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 what I've seen anyway is even the judges are really careful because there's so much there's so much of a chance for somebody go, to go off and react uh, violently.
2: Absolutely, it is a different feel. You know, sitting in a court testifying in a family case versus just going up there for a business transaction, a non compete or a breach, it is absolutely a different feel in a courtroom on all fronts.
1: Have you ever felt at risk in one of those cases?
2: Not in the courtroom. In the courtroom, it's such as, like you mentioned, a controlled environment that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's always fine. Going in and out of the court and working the case, there's times definitely where the hair on the back of the neck stands up and you're a bit more aware of what's happening around you.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, you know, I'm asking, we just had a... uh, police officer in Sacramento, California, that was uh, killed. She just finished, I think, her um, her training six months ago. She's only on the job six months. Yeah, I, I saw think that. Is what, what, yeah, and uh, was was uh, a civil standby just for a woman to remove her things. And, yeah. And obviously, it's a domestic violence issue or a domestic or family law issue, and the guy just loses it. Um,
2: yeah, it's crazy. It's all highly emotionally charged, you know, even something as simple as a cohabitation investigation or an alimony reduction, at the end of the day, I'm trying to prove something that will drastically alter that person's life, and I know that. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm able to prove that they're cohabitating or working, there's a substantial amount of money that person's no longer going to receive. So they have all the reason in the world to not just be guarded,
1: you know, but to react. Right, and that person is spending a lot of energy trying to hide what you're trying to find. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and then what what other kind of cases? You said um, uh, civil cases. What kinds of testimony have you done on civil cases?
2: With the civil cases, it's been, you know, breach of contracts. We've had a few where um, partners in a company have some sort of agreement, and, you know, in one case we had one where a partner decided to poach some of the clients and start freelancing on the side away from the company operation. Uh, So that was a matter of proving that he was, in fact, doing that business on the side. And, again, surveillance piece to it and some record searching of things that had been filed. So we worked that case. um, And then in violation of non-competes, we've had a few of those come across, too.
1: Okay. And and how did you prove the guy was actually... uh using the, the same clients working for, under his own business.
2: Well, the standing partner hired us. You know, she had suspected that he was doing that just based on things she had heard from other people. Some employees heard things and, again, Connecticut's a small state and the area that we're actually in, it's even smaller. So, mm-hmm. word tends to travel pretty quickly around here. Um, this partner had, like I said, heard that this may be happening. she Kind of suspected it, but wasn't really sure. So they had company vehicles. The company owned both vehicles that the partners each used. We placed a GPS tracker on his particular vehicle that was in use and saw, you know, live monitored where it was going. And in fact, you know, from there followed him. And he was going to former clients. And Mm -hmm. we were able to get pictures of him coming and going. And the type of work they were in, Uh, required filings in certain areas. So we were able to get those filings, and his name was on it, as
1: was the poach client's names. Hmm. Interesting. So um, let's talk about GPS for just a second since you brought that up. So uh, what are the rules for for using uh, GPS in Connecticut?
2: So Connecticut's law is... You you know, private investigators are allowed to use them. The law in Connecticut says that GPSs cannot be used to harass, intimidate, threaten, or stalk. It's the Electronic Stalking Act is what it falls under. Mm -hmm. And really it's written for domestic violence purposes, meaning that an ex or a current partner can't use it to stalk their partner with GPS.
1: Okay, okay. But in this case, and it, and so in, it didn't have to, it didn't matter whether it was a company vehicle or not.
2: No, I case. just, myself personally, I'm more cautious with GPSs. You know, I like to make sure that it's not just any vehicle, that it's not just some boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. You know, I'm mm-hmm. very careful with where I use them and when I use them.
1: Right. You know, and this is really a hot button in a lot of states where some states yeah. prohibit it completely today. Uh, some states only allow law enforcement to use it. Other states in California, for example, uh, we have to have the permission of the registered owner. And if the right. registered owner is in both the husband's and wife's name, we could do it. But if it's only in the husband or wife's name and the husband wants her mm-hmm. track, then that's not legal. So it's yeah. it's yeah, it's, uh, yeah you got to know the laws before you do it.
2: Absolutely it's very important.
1: Okay. All right. All right, so tell me what you do, what tell me what you go through to prepare for a court prints. So
2: after the first one that, you know, caused all the panic and alarm, things settle down a bit after the next one and you slowly become more comfortable. But after the first one I became very aware that any case that I worked could end up in a courtroom. You know, that particular case for that first one, I honestly never thought that it would. It was Mm -hmm. kind of a clear-cut, kind of a family issue. I really didn't think it would go to court. So from there forward and still today, every single case that we work, whether it's a family issue, a civil issue, a background check, they all begin with a signed contract. And they (laughs) all end with a written report. Even if it's a simple one-paragraph written report, it's always the same process.
1: Uh, that's a I good, also good practice.
2: Oh, well, that's it. You know, so that I can't ever be questioned because in court, when you're, you know, using your report, let's say, as evidence, one of the questions that will always be asked is, "Is this a standard business practice of you to issue this report?" And as long as I can say yes, honestly, we're able to get those entered. Um, knowing again, or thinking that every case I work will go to court, it's kind of a, a checklist throughout the case, you know, or what we, you know, is what we're doing legal, is what we're doing allowed and permissible, and just constantly being vigilant of that.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think that uh, uh, often many private investigators don't consider what, what they're doing is a, is a legal matter that it, anything we do could end up in court. Yeah. No matter how simple or how complicated.
2: And that's it. And like I said, that first one was a wide awakening for me. And it could be really anything that lands you there.
1: Right. For sure. Okay. So um, now tell me what you do about notes. Do you keep your notes? That's another hot button issue. Oh, I've got boxes of them. Okay. So when you prepare a report, you still keep your notes to go with it? Yes. Okay. Because you know you know the controversy. Um Some people destroy their notes. Uh, Typically, law enforcement, for example, when they prepare their report, Mm -hmm. they destroy their notes. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes that carries over. And any conference I've ever been to that talks about preparing reports and keeping notes or not, it becomes a big discussion item among the groups (laughs) that's there. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, and And I've been in a few of those debates. I agree with you, Stephanie. I keep my notes. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of people... Discourage that, but I think it's—I mean—I think it's the only way to go. Um, you know, not that anybody could read them if looked. Li- li- li-
2: them anyway. Well, I was just going to say that's my safety. No one would ever be able to read my handwriting, so
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. So you always have a contract. You always prepare a report at the end of the case and and as you close it out. So, um, what do you do with the, with the attorney? Or the client, this is, I don't need a report, I just need a verbal state, uh, something verbal. What do you say to that? Because they don't want to pay for it,
2: basically. Well, I I tell them automatically that it's included. You know, when I have them sign the contract up front, I kind of walk them through what this case will be. You know, if I plan to do surveillance or I plan to do record searches, or, you know, whatever my plan is for the case, I kind of just walk them through that and then say to them, and at the end, you'll be provided with a report, evidence, pictures, video, whatever it is I gather, um, and with, and like you said, I have had folks that say, oh no, I don't need one. Just shoot me an email or just call me and tell me I don't want anything. Well, you're getting it. Whatever you choose to do with it is up to you. But okay. in my case file, there will be a report and a copy will be given to you. And, you know, sometimes I'll hand it to them in person or if they really, for some reason don't want it, I've put it in the mail before.
1: Okay. All right. So, um, I, you know, I don't want to pay for a report. I, I, I want to, uh, I want a lesser fee, and I want to pay for a report. So how do you handle that? Yeah. Well, I
2: just tell them that, listen, you know, it's included in what we give. You know, um, it's mm-hmm. kind of built into my cost already. And if it's something that you're adamant about where you don't want the report at the end, then I suggest you call a different firm. So you know, when you, that report covers me.
1: So, okay. So when you bill, you don't bill hourly? You do it on a job rate?
2: I do bill hourly, uh, but the report writing at the end, I typically don't charge for.
1: Okay, I see. Huh, interesting. Okay. I look at
2: the report more for my own purpose. You know, Uh it's my document at the end that summarizes the case, lays out what I found. So for the hour that it would take me typically to write a report, I don't mind eating that money so that I can always say truthfully that, yes, this is a work product that I use in every case.
1: Okay, so – Say the situation is a criminal case or even a civil case and the attorney says, I don't want to report because I don't want to have to I don't want to turn it over. Mm-hmm. What do you do then?
2: I haven't had that happen yet. Okay. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that hasn't tomorrow, happened to me yet. Tomorrow, a lot of those.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, if they were to say something to that effect where, you know, it was my client and they were telling me that they didn't want it so that they wouldn't have to produce it, at that point, I would probably just keep it in my file, in my case file, in my possession. At that point, I've written the report, I've generated it, and, you know, if it were to sit in my file, it wouldn't be uh, discoverable for opposing counsel.
1: Yeah. So, there's a there's a big issue with that, too, just beside of the besides of the report. If two years or three years down the road... This went to court, and you were called to testify. If you don't have that, it's really a problem.
2: Oh, 100%. 100%. And it could be years. You know, having that full case file with that full report at the end, it's a great refresher to be able to look back and go, oh, that's right. You know, this was found, that was found, and here's how I got to those places.
1: Right. Because there's many, many cases in between, and it's it's easy sometimes when they're similar to mix them up.
2: Oh, very easy.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So, you're getting ready for a court appearance. Uh, Tell me what your steps are.
2: Once I know that it's going to court, once I've been, you know, either issued a subpoena or just called by the attorney to let me know that there's a court case coming or a court date coming up, what I'll do typically is reach out to the client. At this point, it's usually an attorney and just go over how they want to proceed. You know, some attorneys... Like to sit down with a face to face meeting to go over everything I have as far as evidence and reports and things to provide. You know, go over the questions they plan to ask me and what they're looking to get from my testimony, what key points they're looking for me to hone in on during my testimony. Uh, Other attorneys are fine doing a phone call, going over those things. And I've had some attorneys tell me, listen, I'll see you in court, I'll see you on the stand, and not want anything, um, you know, to do ahead of time. So I kind of feel out how they want to proceed with it.
1: That's always a little unsettling because, uh, you know, the attorneys that don't want to take the time to actually meet with you or even other witnesses for that matter, uh, that's always a little unsettling.
2: It really is. You know, I understand everyone has their own process and their own way that they get to the end. Mm -hmm. But not knowing, A, what they plan to ask, or B, what they're looking for, you don't really know... Going into it, what's the best way to prepare for you? you know it's hard to memorize an entire case and every single intricate detail. Some of these cases drag on for months and months and months, and you know the file's four inches thick
1: mm-hmm.
2: so not knowing what points it is you I feel I can't prepare as best as I can ahead of time
1: okay okay, and so what you you review the file you um Anything else that you do to prepare?
2: Yeah, I review the file uh, multiple, multiple times, probably too many to be honest. And then, you know, organize it in a way so that I know hands on where my items are if I need to refer to them uh, during the appearance. You know, I'll go through it, kind of put it aside, organize it, put it aside. Night before, go through it one more time, make sure I'm hitting the points the attorney wants me to hit, make sure everything's organized and ready to go, you know, and then that's it, and I put it away. And the day of the appearance, at that point, I'm ready.
1: Do you take your report with you?
2: It usually, in most cases, my report's being entered as evidence, so either I've made the copies for the attorney, you know, when you're going to court, you have to have multiple copies of whatever it is that's being entered. So part of talking to the attorney ahead of time is to make sure who is in charge of these copies. You know, my report, for instance, if my report is something they plan to enter as evidence, four copies are needed for court, you know, mm-hmm. one for the court, each counsel, and then myself to refer to. So knowing who is in charge of the fo- you know copies, who is in charge of bringing all the multiple things is something to definitely go over ahead of time. And then if it's myself, Making all the copies of everything I plan to bring with me, then you know I'll have that ready to go
1: okay, so that's different um hum- let's see let me think about this a second um criminal cases typically the reports uh, you, you get you may get called to say impeach a witness they've they've told mm-hmm. you something different than um, they're saying to the court or saying you know testifying to, so you might have that situation um that report doesn't get submitted to the mm-hmm. court. The things that might get submitted maybe would be, say, measurements or possibly photographs or I'm mm-hmm. um, just thinking here what else might be submitted as a report. So when when you submit your reports, it would be like maybe a surveillance report, perhaps, or records? What are what So are those? in
2: the case of, let's say, a cohabitation investigation, my report would be a surveillance report of everything that I saw coming and going from the property. It would also include everything that I found tying that person to the property legally, whether it's licensing in their name, their motor vehicle registrations, voter registrations, uh, utilities, those types of things. So my report will lay out everything that I found that connects that person to that property. And then a surveillance logs in the report to go along with it. And that investigative report that lays out all of it would be entered as a whole into evidence.
1: Okay. All right. I want to talk about this a little more a little bit more. We're going to take a quick break though. Um, and we'll be right back be back.
0: News. News. Opinion. News. Opinion. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to FRANCIE at PI's Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm
1: here with Stephanie. My uh, guest from Savoy & Associates, she's a private investigator in Connecticut and we're talking today about getting ready for a court appearance and testimony and all the things that go into that. So I, I'm really interested in this, um, what gets reported or what gets submitted as a report uh, when you're in court, Stephanie, because I I think that's also very different state by state. Um, usually, what I at least what I see Where I am is that uh, it's based on the testimony, unless it's actual records, you know, like court-generated records or or some kind of public or government records. Um, The reports of the investigator themselves don't usually get introduced. So that's really fascinating to me that that happens there.
2: Well, that's it, and I think a key piece of my reports getting entered is that it's a standard business practice of mine. You know, this report wasn't a one-time written thing just for this particular case or particular client, Mm -hmm. that because my report is my standard business practice, me testifying as a private investigator in this case, my reports can come in with me because it is something that I do for every single case that I work.
1: And that's such an important statement, Uh, I think, that it's a standard business practice because that's often... It's just like we were talking about notes. If sometimes you destroy your notes and sometimes you keep your notes, then that's problematic because that leaves it open for all kinds of uh, questions about your process. So I'm I'm glad you said that because I think that everybody, every investigator, and I know there's not just private investigators that are listening here, but every investigator should remember that whatever they do, it should be a standard practice.
2: That's it. Like I said, it's, While every case is wildly different, how I work it and what I do during it, it's uniform throughout it. So as you mentioned, I can't get questioned, well, why did I destroy the notes in this case and not a case similar to it? Or why did I not take these photographs or why did I delete the photographs? You know, Mm -hmm. everything that I do is the same throughout every single case.
1: Yeah. You know, that brings up, I'm, this is a really off the wall question, but it brings up when you mentioned photographs. So when you're taking photographs, um, I'm, you know, I, I, a lot of us use our, our iPhones, our cell phones to take photographs today. Do you delete the ones that aren't any good or do you log them in anyway?
2: When I'm using uh, my phone, if it's an image that's blurry or I've accidentally took a picture of my foot, something along those lines, I'll delete right. it right there. But if it's an image of, say, a house and I thought someone was coming out, but it's still, you know, relevant to it, I'll take it, log it, and just put it in a separate file, then usable photos. Typically, all my cases have two file folders for photographs, one being photos that I'm submitting with it and photos that are not being submitted but were generated during the investigation.
1: So if you were questioned about, are these the only photos you took, what would you say?
2: I would say no, that there are X number of other photos taken, but not relevant to whatever the matter is that I was testifying to.
1: Okay. Okay. All right. So, um, so now you're in court and you're on the witness stand. Tell us about that process.
2: Yeah. So, you know, once you're on the witness stand, you know, we have one job while, These cases are sometimes highly emotional, especially with family law. You know, our job is simply to lay out the facts that we found. It's not to give opinion, it's not to try and sway. My job at that point is simply to relay what information I was able to find and what information, you know, I was able to capture during my investigation. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it's the job of the attorney to try and you know, sway or do whatever they have to do. But as an investigator, my job is simply to relay the facts that were found.
1: Right. And sometimes you're called literally by uh, the person you're working for, the attorney you're working for, or sometimes you're called by the other side because they think Mm -hmm. you can help prove something that they're trying to say.
2: Yeah. You know, the majority of the time, you know, we're being called by our clients, you know, our attorneys or their attorneys, Uh, If it's a civilian, but there have been times, too, where opposing counsel, you know, has found out there was a private investigator and beaten them to the punch and called you to testify or called you back to testify on a matter. And again, it's simply relaying the facts of what's been found. You know, it's not my job to fight for the client or the subject. It's not my job to do any of those things. My job is simply to relay what I found during the investigation.
1: So, have you ever run into a situation where the opposing counsel contacts you to get records or or no. subpoenas you to to get the file have has that, have I you have run, been, run that
2: I'm trying to remember now I've been subpoenaed before by opposing counsel um, looking for i believe it was my g p s records mm-hmm. um, I had testified at that point for my client and mentioned during the testimony, what the GPS showed. Later, uh, I was subpoenaed for those records, um, the full log of the GPS, which we produced. And, you know, again, because we had testified to what they found, it was no problem turning them over.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, so did you just turn them over? Or did you contact your attorney client and work through them?
2: Uh, I contacted the attorney that I was working for and let them handle you know, mm-hmm. actually turning it over and dealing with the opposing counsel at that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's important, I it's a very important piece because I think sometimes investigators can be intimidated by getting a subpoena for records, and mm-hmm. the first thing, first thing, obviously, you need to do is contact your client.
2: Oh, 100%. You know, yeah. they're the ones hiring me. They're the ones I'm working for. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, if opposing counsel needs anything from me or wants to speak to me, they can go through my client. Mm-hmm. I work for my client.
1: Right, right. Okay, so um, so when you're called to the witness stand, the person that questions you first is obviously the person that subpoenaed you or asked you to be there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's the opposing counsel, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which makes it a, a, just a little bit dicey because you, you don't know what's coming. Um, but so t- tell me about how you handle yourself on the witness stand.
2: You know, when when we've had a chance to prepare, when it's our side calling us, when it's, you know, our attorney that's calling us up to testify, it's a little more relaxed, of course, because you can anticipate what's coming you know what questions or what they're looking for from, you know, your testimony when it's opposing counsel, as you mentioned, it's a little, little dicier because you're not quite sure what they're going to come at you with or throw at you. But in my experience, for the most part, everything's very professional and very cordial. You know, there is no dramatic fist slamming or, you know, yelling in the courtrooms. They're trying to, get the opposite from what your clients want and you know that going in. So you can't really anticipate what the exact questions will be.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: But once you've had a little bit of experience, you can kind of anticipate what they're going to try and get you to say or not say. So again, knowing your case in and out and knowing that you have legs to stand on, it's simply relaying the information, you know, it's staying calm and cool and collected and just laying out what it is you found during the course of the investigation.
1: Right. Important to stay objective. That's that's sometimes difficult um, mm-hmm. because you have opinions, just like anybody. Yeah. You have opinions after you've worked on a case. Um, oh yeah. But um, okay, so when sometimes, at least uh, in a criminal case, for example, or and probably highly charged, either family law or um, civil cases. The opposing counsel, when they question you, because they will always question you whether it, or typically actually, whether um, they've called you or not, um, when they want to put you in a box and get you to answer the way they want, they want the answer, you know, mm-hmm. how do you handle that situation? You know, they ask you a question that you can't answer. They want you to answer yes or no, and you can't answer yes or no. How do you do that?
2: That's simply my response, is that this isn't a yes or no answer. And yeah. for as many times as they'll ask me for a yes or no, I'll respond with the same, that this is not a yes or no response. And I'll try and get mine entered, and eventually, you know, our side, our counsel will object or, you know, put it back into the court's hands to decide mm-hmm. how to allow me to proceed. Yeah. And again, it's staying objective, and it's simply not feeling pressured into just answering or just surrendering. It's holding your truth.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's kind of, it's it's being centered is the way i 100 way i visualize it is sitting on the witness stand just centering yourself being solid knowing who you are relaxed and mm-hmm. i mean somebody some people can't just can't do that because they have such a fear of uh public speaking but if you just center yourself and kind of settle into that chair <laughs> you know uh it That really helps if you think of it that way.
2: It really does, and that's a perfect way to describe it. And the more times that you're called to testify, the more comfortable and centered that you end up being on there. You know, the first few times it's uncomfortable and it's unsettling because all eyes are on you and the pressure and the spotlight and all those things. But once you go a few times and you get a little more comfortable in it, you become objective and you're able to sit there and answer truthfully and answer clearly and concise and just keep it moving
1: so many times there's a jury sometimes there's not but most many times there's a jury do you direct your uh answers to the jury or are you you talking directly to who's ever asking the questions
2: i'm talking directly to whoever's asking me the question
1: okay because you know there's a lot of uh back and forth on that as well because you see some people that answer the questions They turn to the jury, answer the question, and then turn back to the person who's asking the question.
2: You know, most of the attorneys that I work for, I work for a fairly regular group of attorneys up this way. Um, Most of them that I work for at this point, when or if we're before a jury, if they want me to direct it towards the jury, they will actually stand in front of the jury. So that although I'm responding to them, the jury sees my eyes, you know, eye to eye reaction.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I've always, you know, whenever I've watched uh, those kind of situations, because sometimes you see those on television, but sometimes you actually see them in real court, particularly when an expert testifies, I think more often than not, where mm-hmm. they actually turn to the jury, answer the question, and then turn back, and it feels so <laughs> unnatural to me.
2: It does, and I think there's a, a falseness that gets created almost, that, all, you know, you're there to perform, and I'm not there to perform or to entertain, I'm there to, again, relay the facts and findings.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so Stephanie, you were telling me about a case you had where somebody was representing themselves and you had to go in and testify. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, um, you know, we had a client a while quite a while back now who was a per se, meaning they represented themselves, both sides did actually, so there were no attorneys involved in this case, but it went before um, before a judge, no jury, just a straight judge mm-hmm. and our client was trying to prove that his ex was cohabitating. So went out, did the investigation, found clearly cohabitating. You know, there was no attempt to hide or, you know, falsify anything. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty open and shut case as far as cohabitation investigations go. Well, you know, this client of ours was satisfied with the report we thought and satisfied with the findings I thought, you know, puts me on the stand and, Needed some help from the judge at the beginning about how to begin and, you know, how to direct questions. So the judge helps him through the initial steps, and he starts asking me questions while I'm on the stand. You know, what did you find? Oh, I relate what I found. How did you find it? So, you know, kind of general questions that don't normally come from attorneys, but, Mm -hmm. you know, go through the steps. Well, then he starts going off into these wilder questions. Was I able to see inside the house? Did I observe them ever hugging and kissing? Did and just you know, stranger and stranger questions as time went along. Eventually the judge shut him down and then his ex, who was also representing herself, started asking her own questions, which were as crazy, if not crazier, than the oh, questions goodness. that he was and at this point I'm on this I'm just uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable based on the questions they were asking me. The judge was doing her best to control these questions. It launched into a screaming match between the husband and his ex-wife. And I'm just sitting (laughs) on the stand watching this whole thing play out in front of me. It was comical afterwards.
1: Right. Yeah, because usually you're saved uh, in a situation where there's attorneys by the objection. And it stops everything. But in this case, there's nobody to object. (laughs)
2: that's it. there was nobody to object and it was they were just feeding off of each other's angst and anger and the judge was doing her best to shut it down but to give them some leeway because they were per se and they didn't know you know court procedure and stuff like that so it was uncomfortable sitting through it but comical now that i can look back on it and there's some distance between me and that time in the chair
1: right so um Okay. So how did did it get shut down? I mean, the two people are screaming at each other in the courtroom. That's what you're saying?
2: Oh, screaming, just outright screaming. (laughs) They stopped their focus of me trying to get me to answer questions that were completely inappropriate to just yelling at each other over allegations of who slept with who first. And, you know, so eventually the judge just shut it down, uh, said she would give her ruling at a later date and let us all go.
1: That was probably good for her. <laughs>
2: good for it was her. good for all of us in that courtroom, <laughs> trust me.
1: Wow. So, uh, and what about uh, with attorneys? Have you had any unusual situations when you were testifying uh, on behalf of your attorney client? You know, not
2: not too often. You know, the only, I would say, odd things that ever take place are when, you know, my side is counsel, meaning as an attorney representing the case, and the other side is a per se, where they have no attorney. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those get a little bit dicey because, again, the person doesn't know court procedure and how things work, and they're basing their entire legal expertise off of law and order. Um, You know, they'll jump up for objections when it's not called for or try and throw out other legal jargon that doesn't play or make sense in the moment, or try and ask irrelevant questions during their cross-examination period.
1: Mm-hmm. So sometimes
2: that's where things get a little bit haywire when you're on the stand, and it's you know attorney on one side and a per se on the other. But typically, having an attorney there at least to help guide things, and the judge does a pretty decent job too with per se clients. Mhm.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Interesting. I, I. You know, I don't think I've ever seen a case where there's been uh, two people representing themselves that were uh, both testify or both uh, at the defense and prosecution table. Uh, interesting, yourself interesting situation.
2: Yeah, it was it was wildly out of control.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so what advice do you have, um, it, really, for anybody, not just private investigators, but for anybody that's going to go on the witness stand? What advice do you have for them?
2: I would suggest, you know, obviously preparing yourself as best you can with material that you're being asked to testify to push to take the time to talk to whatever counsel is calling you to testify. You know, sometimes you will get brushed off. Oh no, I'll see you in court. We'll talk before court. You know, if this is your first time or second or third, don't be afraid to tell them that. Say, listen, you know, I'm new to this. I haven't testified that often. I think a few minutes ahead of time would really do us both well. I think once they know that, it might encourage them to take a little more time uh, to sit down with prep for you. But once you're there, stay focused on your mission. You know, your mm-hmm. job is to relay what your investigation or whatever your findings are and stay true to that. You know, we all end up having opinions no matter how hard we try sometimes and especially in family cases. Mm-hmm. But it's not our job to lay out those opinions or facts. You know, stay objective, stay centered, know that there's court rules and procedures there to protect you from everything, anything going out of control and just take your time, you know, don't feel pressured or rushed into an answer. You know, if you need a second or a minute to formulate an opinion or thought to get it out, take that time because what you're saying will have an impact. And I think as long as you remember that, you'll make it through it.
1: Yeah. I actually think that's the hardest part is uh, because you do, no matter how comfortable you are, you do feel pressure, particularly if a jury's there. you do feel pressure yeah. with everybody sitting there looking at you to answer the question and And that's such good advice, Stephanie, because I mean you can say, "Give me a minute, I need to think about this or or you know something to to just give you a little time to answer because if uh, if you don't say something like that, don't kind of make a bridge, then there's this heavy silence in the room. <laughs>
2: Right, which only puts more pressure on you to get something out of your mouth. And in the moment, you know, you have to be clear and concise with what it is that you're saying. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to say, just give me one second. Let me think about that or let me refer back or let me find it. Whatever your bridge is, give yourself the time to formulate your thought the proper way.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Okay. This is this is all really good advice. Um, Let me think. Do I have any other questions about this? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, um, do you ever get any feedback from your attorneys about how you testified, one way or the other?
2: I do. They all, for the most part, they always say to me right after the words, you know, how they think it went, and you know again, after the first couple times, I've gotten a lot more comfortable now and they know that they can rely on me for excellent testimony. You know, that's mm-hmm. one of the strong suits and that's one of the things when attorneys are referring me to some to another attorney, it's, hey, she's great on the stand. She can really testify really well.
1: Yeah, that's good. Have you ever had a situation where you, you felt, oh no, this didn't go well at all?
2: There, Yeah, there's been a couple family things where... You know, I know my testimony went well, but I didn't think it was enough to get across the finish line sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've had a couple of those, but luckily they've ended up going in our favor. But there's definitely times that you walk out of the courtroom going, I have no idea how that went.
1: You know, well, you and, think you did you know, well, but. That's not our job. You know, our job no. isn't to, to move the case one way or the other, really. It's just to say what we know. That's it. And, you know, sometimes people get, I mean, unfortunately, people get mixed up with that. Sometimes, you know, somebody gets, an investigator or an attorney gets emotionally involved, and they think that it's their job to win. And it's really not, if we could get out of that mode of winning and losing, which is, seems to be always the case, uh, things would be a lot better. <laughs>
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's where things get muddy sometimes too. And that's where, especially as investigators, you really need to draw that line in the sand, you know, and it's hard, you know, it's really hard to stay objectionable sometimes, but knowing that that's not our job, Mm -hmm. it's a good reminder throughout every case.
1: It is. And, you know, and I've got to say, sometimes it's, it's difficult because you, like I said, like we talked about originally, um, you do have opinions, you know. You mm-hmm. you working the case, you um, you can make a judgment on whether this person is telling the truth or that person is telling the truth or this is happening or that happened, and and uh, so it, it it could color the way you present yourself. Maybe not in your words, but but we also have to be a, very aware of our body language.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I think trying to maintain that especially when you go through those courtroom doors, you know, it's putting your game face on. It's acting professional and not any facial reactions, you know, sometimes around the subjects that you've been investigating. It's knowing that you're there and everything that you do is watched and observed.
1: Well, and you you bring up a really good point, Stephanie, because I don't think it just starts with when you walk in the courtroom. It's, you know, you see jurors on the elevator. You see judges on in the hallway, other attorneys. It really starts with any time you're operating around the court arena, because once they see you and they remember seeing you before, it that could make a difference in just how your, your testimony is received.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's from the moment you walk in the court doors. You know, the marshals, yeah. you know they end up knowing who you are after the first few times you come through the doors and right. it's a small building and a small area and your reputation will follow you throughout that building and throughout other buildings for that matter. You know, Connecticut's a small state. So you have to always know that you're being watched and observed and how you conduct yourself will matter.
1: And you know, this is a side issue, but I, I, been around for a long time because I'm an old person but (laughs) I used to think I used to think that it didn't really matter the attorney that I worked for that I was working under um, whether they did a good job or didn't do a good job and I realized at some point in my career that that's it's really important who the attorneys you work for because your reputation your reputation gets connected to them.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, there have been some attorneys that we've turned down working for because of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I want my reputation to be stellar and I want the people that I'm associated with to be as. Word gets around really quickly, as I mentioned. And if you are playing in the mud, that's going to get out quickly too.
1: That's very true. Well, this is a good point to end on, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me back. Absolutely, Stephanie Savoy, Savoy and Associates. Join me again next week, guys, when we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Stephanie. Every Thursday morning, it's PI's Declassified, and Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.
0: You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler.